Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Spectacle. And this week, we're very excited. Scott and Kay and I are very excited to have a guest on today, who is the new editor of The American Spectator. That would be Dr. Paul Kangor. Um, Scott McKay, of course, of Reviver.com and also uh, writing a couple times per week, a lot for the American Spectator. And so we're all here together today talking about something that I said I would not talk about anymore because I was the Debbie Downer of this dumb podcast for weeks now. And here we are, we're actually going to dedicate a whole episode to something that has been affecting people everywhere in the political sphere, strangely enough. It's, it's a conversation about evil. We touched on it again last week, more than touched on it, talked at, about it for, at length. And it seems to be coming up in conversations with everyone. What's been shocking to me is that even the agnostics and atheists in my life have been openly saying something is not right. <laughs> this is different. This is evil. So um, has that been your experience, uh, Paul? Is that what you're seeing in your life as well? I mean, um, and we brought you on because you've written some books on this topic and also, um, you know, Scott and I ha are trying to make sense of this phenomenon because it seems different. Yeah, it, well, Russell Kirk, right, to bring this right to a kind of a conservative political perspective, Russell Kirk said that all problems, all political problems are really moral and religious problems. And, you know, that when he said that, I mean, Kirk died almost 30 years ago at this point. And for a while, if you would have said that to somebody in the left, right, they would have just snickered. But I think a lot of people on the left today are even understanding that. Now, they might not be coming from an orthodox Christian perspective, right, a conservative religious perspective, you know, like an orthodox Roman Catholic position or something like that. And the, the largest growing group in America among religious categories are the so-called nuns, N-O-N-E, right, nuns the non-religious affiliated. And an even growing group is um, our, our literal pagans, people who uh, just don't believe in any conventional religion whatsoever. I mean, for the longest time, Melissa, it, you, demographers and, and people, people can still point to figures like 80 to 90 percent of Americans still believe in God right? The majority still go to church. But I mean, that percentage of those believing in God, it's been dropping about about 10% every 10 years. And you just wonder how much it's going to continue to go down. But people generally know, and you know, perhaps this is um, a natural law thing, perhaps it's quite literally a matter of conscience. But you just you can you can feel evil. You could recognize it. And, you know, even, you know, St. Paul said, you know, about about Jews and Gentiles, even even if they don't know the God of Israel, even if they don't know who Jesus is, they have a sense of what's out there that's in nature of what's of what's right and wrong. And you know, to, to quote from Ephesians, the famous line from Ephesians 511 and 612 it says, we are not contending against flesh and blood, 
but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, that's from the New Testament. But I think a lot of people who in the past might have looked at that, looked at that and dismissed it because they were non-believers kind of nod when they hear that. Yeah, we are we are going against something that is can't quite see, can't quite touch, but you can uh, you can just feel the evil out there. It's palpable. So yeah, to bring it back to Kirk, right? The, Paul, these... Paul, it's interesting. I'm just before I forget this, I was just thinking about that scripture that you quoted in our noon fundraising letter. I quoted mm-hmm. I because we are so clearly fighting against powers and principalities. It's like it's like shadow boxing with some form of like nebulous evil that seems to be affecting people in the physical material realm. That's interesting that you actually quoted that today. I did. Um, yeah, it's no, that, it, no, that's the... fascinating. But again, it, it just, it kind of shows how um, even though, right, we didn't get together beforehand and talk about that, about that quote and, and you and I, um, talk a couple times a week, at least. We email almost every day. We have a weekly editorial meeting, and I don't think we've ever actually shared that quote with one another nope. before, but 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 it, it's just that everybody can feel this. It's kind of the track that we're going on, and you just have this, not to sound apocalyptic, right, literally apocalyptic, but there's just this kind of sense of doom and gloom that um, sort of end times feel, right? And I'm not saying... We're right now living in the end times. I, I don't know that. No one ever knows that. I mean, every generation, well, many generations have felt that they were living in end times. But but everybody just has the sense that everything is so crazy now that you know, Pilate said to Jesus, what is truth? And that's that's really the zeitgeist today. That's really the spirit of the age. No one knows what truth is. And not everyone even believes in God or the God of the Old Testament or God of the, of the New Testament, but it, but but they all agree that there's this this feeling of evil in the air. Well, so Scott has been after me because I have um, been a little bit negative, uh, negative Nancy about all of this, and. I had to rewrite that the same, you know, thing that we're talking about like three times and throw it out. And I actually came to your point of view, Scott. Um, I actually ended uh, positive in that I think change comes one individual at a time. And there are signs, you know, Scott has literally written the book about the new revival, uh, you know, the revivalist manifesto. And has been generally more been more optimistic that there seems to be a fight, you know, um, in the American people. So, like we've seen it with, um, in many ways, with like parents fighting at um, school board meetings and people not backing down about changing the laws about literally porn in schools, that sort of thing. Scott, you seem to be more positive about this. And what do you see that could be around the corner from where where we're at right now? Well, um, and I don't want to do too much mixing 
uh, between, uh, I think the, the gist of our conversation today is going to be in the cultural realm more than the political realm. Mm-hmm. However, and there's a great piece at the Federalist, um, we're recording this on Tuesday, uh, John Daniel Davidson has a thing basically saying, look, the, the culture war is the politics now. Like in, until you recognize that that is the crux of American existence right now is, is try to, trying to preserve the culture against this you know, woke revolution, I guess, would be a way to, to, to call it. Like, if you can't see the primacy of that, then really everything else, I mean, who cares what the tax rates are if you lose your culture because you're going to lose everything else following that. And I think that that's mostly correct. Mm-hmm. Having said that, you know, I, and, and I don't know politically how much we can assess this to say that there is a re- revival around the corner. I think the midterm elections were... Um, somewhat of a downer where that was concerned. However, within the culture, you do see some some green shoots. Um, like, I mean, I look at the Bud Light controversy, which seems, you know, it, it seems a little strange to talk about that within the context of the fight between good and evil. But, you know, here's a beer brand that essentially, um, you know, em- embraces something that isn't just transgressive from the standpoint of traditional morality, which is the whole trans piece, but also embraces somebody who is um, attempting to become famous for being famous, right? Like the most obnoxious thing about Dylan Mulvaney was not so much that this is somebody who's trans, it's that this is somebody who is essentially trying to invent themselves as a celebrity without any merit whatsoever. I mean, everybody's probably seen the video from several years ago of Dylan, Dylan Mulvaney, Mulvaney, who is at the time just an like really outrageously effeminate gay guy going on the Price is Right and getting called down to the stage. Um, you know, and you start to realize that this is somebody who is just looking for a gimmick to get famous and they, and they make money off of that. And Bud Light goes and jumps on this. Everything about that, I mean, you want to talk about the banality of evil, is encapsulated within that story. And, you know, what happens is the American public reacts to this as though, you know, you're trying to make somebody drink strychnine. They throw it up, right? And um, essentially, that's what happens, right? Their sales drop 26%. Everybody involved gets fired. The top management at, at Ambev you know, starts trying to minimize this whole thing and they can't run away from it fast enough. I mean, that is the culture trying to preserve itself. And I'm not saying, you know, American culture as of today is particularly virtuous, but it's certainly more virtuous and and less evil than what is, you know, the, 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 uh, the elites are trying to foist on us, right? I mean, you know, we, we spend a lot of time talking about Okay, so what's the next cultural aggression we're going to have forced down our throats? Is it pedophilia? Is it bestiality? Is it, you know, whatever, polygamy, whatever? Um, You know, and everybody kind of seems to believe that this stuff is inevitable. Um, And yet, you know, you look at the Bud Light thing and it's a pretty good indication that, you know, maybe people are willing to fight back and say no. Um, You know, know, Scott. Yeah. The, and, and, in, and in particular, right, the, the Bud Light VP who did this, her name is Alyssa Heinerschneid. Heinerschneid, yeah. 
and and she's she's educated at Harvard, right? She went to the Wharton School of Business, right? And so, you know that most of the people that uh, the Bud Light is targeting live in areas like I do, Western Pennsylvania, right? They they watch football, they watch NASCAR. That's their target audience. They're not people who go to Harvard and the right. Wharton School of Business, right? They 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 might go to um, you know, kind of, kind of middle range colleges, community colleges, by the way, I came up through all of that myself. So I'm not putting myself ab ab above any of that. And, and the tar the, the quote from her, this is her quote. She said, quote, it's like, we need to evolve and elevate this incredibly iconic brand, right? So you can right. hear her kind of already doing that. It means inclusivity. Right. It means shifting the tone. It means having a campaign that's truly inclusive and feels lighter and brighter and different and appeals to men and women. So that's all kind of, you know, chirpy, chippy, uh, you know, corporate talk. But, right. but, it's, but it's in that line, cliches, right? is it, it is, really it is. But look at it. But that line, I think, it's like we need to evolve. Right. So, you know, to bring that back again to kind of the, you know, Russell Kirk, you know, Burke, conservative understanding. Uh, you know, what, Pete, what the American Spectator has been writing since 1967, Bob Terrell and the, the founder of American Spectator, you know, these progressives, they, they believe in this steady, ongoing evolution, right? You know, there are no moral absolutes. There's no, you know, we aren't guided, but we aren't anchored or rudder by a biblical and natural law. We're always evolving. We're always changing. We're always, we're always changing all the time, right? The, Kirk talked about an enduring moral order. Right. That's what exists for, for these progressives. It's like an evolving moral order. Right. So the morality to the sense there's even morality is always changing. What's interesting, and I think, and this helps validate your point, is that even many, a lot of people who call themselves progressives are finally now catching on to thinking, oh, <laughs> so right. so if we say you can change your gender, OK, to be whatever you want it to be. And LGBTQIA+, plus, the plus can signify 70 plus different gender options. Well, this is what this looks like, right? This is, who are we to say no when you come up with your own? And so really, Alyssa here is kind of holding them true to their convic convictions, right? But the problem is, in this case with Bud Light, and uh, the liberals always say, Stop your culture wars, right? Here again, they're pushing the culture wars. They're That's trying right. to shove this exactly right. down the throats, right? You pour it down the throats, right? Bud Light of the NASCAR guy, right? Of of people who who just who want to be left alone. They they don't want to have to, uh, you know, be assaulted with some ideology or belief on sexuality and gender gender identity that they don't believe in. So I guess you're right. A positive is that there's pushback, there's resistance to this, but I still feel like, um, and maybe Melissa and I are closer on, on this point, we're still just culturally, politically, morally going to hell in a handbasket. And I, the only thing- I'm, that, not on the, I'm not on the opposite side of you on that question. Well, the only thing that turns it around, and this, this is your language, right, would be a religious revival. But I think it's got to be something short of, uh, I mean, something literally miraculous in the sky that just has to make everybody do such a 180 that it shakes everybody out of their of their thinking. Because short of that, I just think we're going closer and closer, closer to the cliff. 
And uh, the more that the, those numbers shrink on the nuns, well, the nuns, the more they expand. And the fewer the people that believe in God, the more pagans you see, the more witches that you see among middle-aged women. It's just going to get, it's going to get worse. It's not going to get better. It's going to get worse. It's interesting that you bring up paganism because, so <clears throat> we're, and to your point about progressives, finally, some getting it, uh, Naomi Wolf has had in like her last four or five, maybe 10 pieces been talking about religion. I actually right. watched a YouTube video of her going through and explaining how uh, the between Jacob and Esau and explaining what was happening with Laban and Jacob and all of the kind of machinations there and then him um, wrestling with God and or and uh, you know asking for a blessing it, it, very fascinating conversation but she's returning to her roots and and she did did a piece yesterday that i read about all the pagan uh symbolism that charles brought into the coronation that wasn't there before well interesting and so even all the women were dressed looking like druids they were all wearing <laughs> these white long dresses something that i totally missed um, but she said she went through all of the various coronations in the past and how the women that, yes, they dressed in white, but they dressed in the manner and the custom of what was popular. So they looked and how all of these dresses were kind of like like what a druid would wear, wow. uh, a long white sack, essentially, even a uh, little Charlotte, the little princess was dressed that way. Now, they all looked elegant, I thought, but. It was interesting to me. The other thing that happened during the coronation was that you couldn't hear the blessing where uh, Charles was consecrated to God. They put up, this is something that's never been done before, which I didn't realize. They put up like a tent around him. So no one could see the oil being poured on his, his the oils poured on his head, his heart and his hands, symbolic of his mind of course, his soul and the actions, what he does, right? And no one saw that and no one could hear the prayer that was prayed over him. They mm. actually brought up the choir. You could hear when Queen Elizabeth was consecrated, you could hear the whole prayer. And so like, there's some things in, and one of the things that Naomi Wolf has been kind of going off on, which a lot, uh, and she's coming from the progressive end. I mean, remember, she's like Al Gore's, find yeah, your masculinity dude person <laughs> you know like she was consulting with him on the presidency back then and she's like look at all the satanism that is everywhere through our arts and sciences now which is just um and i had this argument with my daughter a theological argument she was talking about well i don't think i think it's things are different now with technology i was like i don't think so when you go back to the Garden of Eden, you look at the two choices. The cho choice was believe God and obey him, which is the tree of life, and accept his morality, or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It didn't mean it's all evil. It means that you got to, the, the real point of it was you were deciding what was good and evil. And you shall be as gods. Yep. You shall be yep. as gods. And that's what we're seeing now. 
the yep. whole transgender thing, the transhumanism thing is I get to decide what I am. And I saw this other feminist, ironically, scholar online talking about how the technology is helping young people in particular believe this. So like when they pick an avatar, which these children have done, my own too, I didn't even think about this, guys, but it, it kind of freaked me out when I did, is that if you had like a... Um, a we, you picked, you made a me, they called it a little M-I-I. And you, you made the, and you could change the character to look like how you wanted to. So we have people now growing up who their whole life have chosen avatars of what they wanted, how they wanted to change themselves. And she said, is it so strange that young people now grow up thinking they can do that in the real world, that they can make themselves into anything that they want, these little gods. And she didn't say that part. I'm saying that part. And I was like, of course. Now, the hopeful thing is that um, the acceptance of LGBT stuff amongst Gen Zers has dropped from like 68% to 43%. They're the ones who are being bombarded with this stuff. And they're like, you know, seeing their peers going Today, I identify as this and you have to call me this. And they're like, you know what? Pound sand. I'm not doing it. You know, like, and so they're seeing this in real life. But what it's doing is really bifurcating the even more uh, um, concretely and enforcing politics onto people who, I don't know about you guys, but I wasn't thinking about this very much when I was in high school or college or whatever. I mean, it was part of, it was out there. I read the Wall Street Journal every day, which, which was probably pretty weird for a college student. But I, it, you know, mostly as far as voting and stuff and getting too involved, eh, life was pretty good. But, you know, you see now the young people don't have that choice. So they're in the culture war whether they want it or not. And and it's clearly, they're the kids who are conservative are getting more conservative. I don't know if you see that, Paul, because you have children my children's age. And Oh, I was talking about it yesterday in one of my classes at um, at Grove City College. In fact, my Marxism course, because we were talking about critical race theory Mm -hmm. and we were talking about Patrice Cullors, the founder of Black Lives Matter. In fact, I've got her memoirs right here. I won't pull it up because I have something sitting on top of it. But she is, um, so I've read her memoirs and quoted a number of times a number of different articles for the American Spectator. And she calls herself a trained Marxist. She says, Alicia and I, that'd be Alicia Garza, we are trained Marxists. We are super versed in ideological theories. And, And if you read her memoir, what's really striking about it, Melissa Scott, is not so much, she's not really talking about like wealth redistribution and economics and kind of classical Marxism stuff. It's full of gender sexual stuff all through it. And I mean, it is the original BLM website. One of the articles I wrote for us at Spectator, I took screenshots before they scrubbed the BLM website where it said call for things like abolition of the nuclear family. Yep. And, and I you know, keep 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 all of that stuff. But in the memoirs, there's this one spot where she talks about her um, girlfriend, I guess, female, biological female proposing marriage to her okay and and she says this is what she said you you two she said they they get down on their knee and they propose to me 
And I remember putting this in the article and sending it to Ellie Gardy, our editor, and, and Ellie kind of responding and saying, I see that you're confused about this. Let me tell you what's going on here. And I'm thinking, I'm trying to read this, right? I probably read this like the first time three years ago. And I thought, who's they? Right. Well, well, I, I, right. How many people second. are we talking about here? Yeah, I think we're, I thought we were talking about one person who I think is biological female, who I think is her wife, right? And it, she's calling it a they, but it can't be a they because they is plural, right? I mean, we're editors, right, Melissa? I mean, you know, they right. means plural. It is singular. He, she <laughs> is singular. So we're changing pronouns to the point right. where we're making pronouns. We're even changing whether they're plurality and singularity, right? I, I mean, they become singular of all things, right? Uh, so I, I'm thinking, is this person like a split personality? Are there two or three people in the room that are proposing? I'm confused. And, and, and so I sent this to Ellie and she said, I see you're confused here. What's really going on is this, is this person's choice of pronoun, her wife here is a they. And I'm thinking, I can't even keep up with this. So I imagine- mean- uh, well, I think it's kind of perfect, Paul, because <laughs> because they, you know, the multiple personalities, we are legion, right? Like, so right. who are we dealing with? I think right. we're right. dealing with demons, and I think there's more than one with, of them, and certainly the people who are the trans, and I have yet to see one who seems whole-centered and of one mind and body. And we're not saying they're possessed. Yeah, well, I yeah, think for, some are. Yeah, yeah, for the you record. You might not be saying it. I think some are. But but <laughs> I mean, yeah, and I, I know Scott wanted to talk about about this, but in the you know, in the larger issue of um of evil and demonic possession and and uh applying this or not to you know to to trans issues and so forth. But I mean this goes back, of course, thousands of years, and it's fascinating that right now. Two of the most popular movies that are out there are about exorcisms, yep. and and you know, this is what Scott and I were emailing about last week, which which led to you guys asking me to come on. The in fact uh, the movie Nefarious that was the number one most clicked piece at our website, the review by Robert Orlando, mm-hmm. um, a couple weeks ago, and the other movie with Russell Crowe, The Pope's Exorcist, which is about Gabriella Morth, who was the chief exorcist of Rome. I have two of his books, Ignatius Press, on my shelf here right now. He died pretty recently, I guess a couple of years ago, maybe, and those books are at least 10 or 20 years old. But you know, those aren't, um, and they're not like The Exorcist in the 1970s with the projectile vomiting and the head spinning around. But but I mean, these are, you know, Gabriella Morth was, was the chief exorcist of Rome. And the fact that so many people are watching these movies shows that even in a cynical culture like ours, and even I get emails from these, you know, like snotty intellectuals, uh, Professor Ken Gore, tell us about your your sky fairy, this God that you believe in, right? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but, e- but even people like that, when they, when they hear about um, demonic possession and evil, they stop and they pause because they, <laughs> they have a sense that that stuff is real. And uh, you kind of you kind of know it in your soul, and uh, and I think a lot of people Naomi Wolf and others they are um, if you're going to talk about evil, right? Evil also exists in the form of the devil and demons. That's all part of this. 
Well, if I can jump in here. Um, so in New York, the whole city is kind of up in arms over this Jordan uh, Neely uh, situation, uh, who was this, you know, homeless guy who had been arrested 42 times, was known to harass people on subways just, you know, every day. Um, and so finally, this, you know, this guy is screaming and yelling at people and threatening to, to do harm to folks. And so this guy's a Marine. I think his name is Daniel Penny. Basically puts the guy in a headlock and drags him to the ground so he can't hurt anybody. Two other people jump on him to keep him immobilized until they can, you know, get to a station and get him off the train. And of course, you know, the, the guy ends up, um, I guess, choking to death, uh, which is unfortunate. But at the same time, this was in there. Oh, he had a, a mental health uh, episode. And the question there is, well, what was going on with this guy's life? Was it a drug thing? Was it just a mental illness thing? Was there spiritually something wrong with this guy? Because frankly, you see these people on the streets all the time. You have entire cities in America that have been taken over by people who essentially exhibit those exact same behaviors. San Francisco... There is, I can't remember what the what the, the Twitter account is, but there is somebody who is sharing Twitter videos of crazy people or possessed people or something who are on the streets of San Francisco, like walking down the street, screaming profanities and accosting people. And, you know, and like, you're not even supposed to do anything about it. You're just supposed to like walk to the other side of the street, give them distance. The cops don't do anything about these people. And they're basically terrorizing the streets of San Francisco. Um, you know, and whether it's substance abuse or mental illness or whatever, I mean, things like that are why so many people who, particularly anybody who works in a city or uh, has to spend time in a city and is around this kind of thing, if they have to ride a subway or any kind of mass transit, they see this stuff and, you know, it gives off a really strong impression. Hey, you know what? Not only is this not the America that I grew up in, like there's something palpable in the air that I can see that is not correct. This is not how people act. This is there's something here when it's this many people, um, you know, and I, I'll, I'll give you another example. Um and of course, this all comes back to Hollywood eventually, right? But I think Sunday night there was a fundraiser that uh, that some group in Hollywood did that basically was a pro uh, LGBTQ thing, um, and I guess this is to raise money to fight efforts in state legislature against you know the anti grooming laws or the drag queen laws or whatever. And Marsha Gay Harden, who is an actress who's been in pretty much everything. Um, she comes out and she says, all my kids are queer. And I think she has three. So the question is like, okay. Um, and then this is, you know, Charlize Theron said she was going to F up anybody that was messing with drag queens. And I mean, the whole thing was just a complete mess. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you that everybody who's, you know, gay or whatever is evil, but there is something to be looked at when you have a prominent Hollywood actress like Marsha Gay Harden, who brags about the fact that all three of her kids are queer. Statistically, well, it, it, that's impossible. That's right. In fact, gay people have always said that 
they are something like, you know, six to 10% of the population. And right. other people said, nah, it's, it could be anywhere like one to 10%. Well, in her family, it's a hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> to go, to go, you know, three for three like that, that's clearly that's environmental. That's environmental. Right. That's I, I right. Mean, like there's just, there's, I mean, you know, you've had, I don't remember the specific, there's actually been a couple of people in Hollywood who are bragging about their multiple trans kids. I mean, if you think having three gay kids is like got to be environmental, there's almost no explanation for multiple trans kids in a family. Yeah, statistically, um, it's, it was never supposed to, it's supposed totally to be like that. So, yeah. so turning your kids gay or turning your kids trans, I would think that that is an evil thing to do. I would think that you can't even argue that that's an, I mean, evil in the sense that it is contrary to, um, uh, contrary to nature um, and in a way that is not um, at least, well, based on the society that we that we have and that we've built. Uh, well, in the biblical sense, Genesis, right? God made the male that, and female. For sure. Right. Um, but I'm, I'm trying to soften it from that, from that just to say, look, you know, the America of the 1990s, you would say, look, if you have a choice, you know, you'd rather not be gay, right? Um, it's also just not pejorative against gay people. It's just, you know, it's, it, it's generally advantageous if you want to find somebody to love or whatever that, you, you know, that you're part of the majority of the folks. But, the but society you know, they're trying to build is opposite of that. I think. Evil, um, evil doesn't get its due from the culture, right? And the, I, I mean, we we all say all the time, you want to resist these things, you put on the the full armor of God, right? The spiritual armor of God. You 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 visit the sacraments, right? I, I mean, the, these are the things that you do to protect yourself. And so, if you go from a society that was once ninety percent Judeo Christian. And it's down to like maybe 60 now. More and more people are taking off that spiritual armor and they're opening themselves for this. They're making themselves vulnerable to it. And the with um, with cases of demonic possession, I mean, the, the way this goes is families get to a point with a certain individual who um, they say, okay, there doesn't seem to be a rational explanation for what's going on right now in this house with this person. And so they will contact a... A church, and then they'll contact the, the diocese. Maybe, in fact, a lot of Protestant churches will go to the Catholic Church, and they'll and they'll contact the diocese, and then and then they'll contact an exorcist, and then before the exorcist goes there, they contact a psychiatrist, and they do all these different evaluations, and only after going through a whole bunch of things and ruling out psychological issues and other things. And by the way, it's usually more often that, but it will get to a point. Where sometimes they say, "Okay, we think this is indeed spiritual." Uh, I mean, entire books have been written about this. You want to read something scary? Read uh, the late Malachi Martin's book, "Hostage to the Devil." I mean, that is—that's the scariest book I've ever read in my life. And he—he he was an exorcist, but uh, people, um, this—that ha happens in in this world. And it, it, so oftentimes we're looking for a political or rational explanation or even a cultural explanation, but sometimes the reason is spiritual and we shouldn't be surprised by that. Well, okay, Scott, Scott Impact, a psychiatrist, uh, wrote about, about a book about evil and he was privy to, he was allowed by an exorcist to be in the room for two exorcisms. Wow. And... Um, one of the things that he 
I think his book is The Nature of Evil. It's really a good book. I highly recommend it for everybody. Okay. Um, because it's kind of going at this, this nexus, you know, he had seen things in his practice as a psychiatrist that he could not explain. That that therapy did not help, that medication did not help. And then he, in talking to these priests, realized that this is what he was seeing. And one of the things that uh, was interesting for him is that the priest said that a person of sound mind who was whole and uh, not even necessarily a believer, but just not a damaged, fearful person, which a lot of people are was much better in the room with the presence of evil than somebody who maybe was a believer, but was afraid or had some other kind of problems themselves. Because Satan and his minions prey on the weak. And I think it's important too to say that an average whole healthy person is, is not gonna be bothered by demonic forces. They're gonna. They're going after the weak and the susceptible, which is why we see so many drug addicts looking like they're possessed because they probably are. Because not only are they physically weakened, but they're psychologically and psychically weakened. Just like this guy uh, in that you mentioned, Scott, in uh, New York. And one of the things that I said on Twitter is like, where was his family? You know, now they're wanting to sue this guy who killed him, or you know let's say, uh, subdued him, and then end, the guy ended up dead. But where were you? This guy clearly should have been in a mental hospital. He needed care. And the absolute disinterest of everyone involved. And, and like when you talk about San Francisco, like I have a friend who's moving out of there, the place is dead at night. Like no one walks the streets. And you have all of these drugged out wraiths who are just kind of, wandering the streets like zombies and and so the average whole healthy people can't go there and the city is is dying and it's consumed by this craziness and or, uh, another author who um ursula lagoon who or gwen depending on how you say it she has the description of san francisco what is it is right now she has this description of it and everybody's drugged and everybody's lost and um and it, it so like c.s lewis has written about it the we've seen it you know like all of, throughout time and literature this is not a new thing the right. scary thing for me is is that the need is so great now that there's not enough priests to do exorcisms like right. It, right. there's just not it's they're overwhelmed and so I think people are seeing this, but the, the the solution to this is not what people want to hear, especially on the left who think every kind of lifestyle is okay, which is why California has gotten to the point it is. Because who are they to judge if a person wants to, you know, you know, drug themselves out and live on the streets? That's just a lifestyle, right? It's a lifestyle choice. Well, the solution to that is whole healthy people who get married and have whole healthy families. You know, like the 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 safety comes in, like you talk about you talk about the sacraments, but even if you're not Catholic or Orthodox or whatever, the there is safety in making these bonds 
And it makes it very difficult to break the children, to break the family when everybody is solid together. Um, and that's just from a human natural's point of view. Um, and most people innately know this. And this is why I think like the on the left, they're trying to subvert it. They want all of those things that come from marriage, that come from having children, but they want it on the cheap. They don't want to do the things that get you there, but they want all the benefits of that, which is why going, and they want the social social sanction that comes with it. But it, it's, it, it's impossible for that to happen. So then you have the Mary, or what's her name, uh, the the actress that you just mentioned, Scott, and yeah. yeah, and and then you have someone like Charlie Theron, who you know her th she decides that her three year old is transgender. Well, that's her evil. Yeah, and she's putting that, and she's not married, and she's putting this on this child, and. Um, it's suicidal and it's a dead end and it's exactly what a Satan would want because he cannot create and so he wants to um, he hated Adam and Eve because he knew what they were which was better than him because they could create he couldn't and he still hates it that spirit still works now and so they can get everybody to stop creating on their own. I mean, the stories of the detransitioners, I don't know if you guys have seen very many of them, are so horrifying and right. so grief-inducing. I can't even even imagine being the parents or uh, the person who went through this. It's just heinous. Yeah, <laughs> and well, for parents you, to be doing this to kids, I just, oh. Well, if you, if you, um, you, you can Google uh, Walt Heyer, H-E-Y-E-R, uh, -E um, who's written a whole bunch of stuff in a bunch of different places. I mean, this is somebody who went through that. Uh, I guess, uh, you know, Walt, Walt is a guy who uh, transitioned to a woman and then realized what a mistake that was. You know, and, and of course, if you go back and you watch uh, Matt Walsh's movie, What is a Woman? He gets into he gets into a lot of that and, and talks to some you know some people who have gone through this and in all of these cases you had you know folks that call themselves medical professionals who basically induced all of this. Um, it wasn't just well this is a bad idea but if you want to do it okay it's you know like they they just put them on a fast track and, and sent them down the line um, without a whole lot of. Um, you know, thought as to, okay, what are the long-term implications of this? And the reason, and, and Walsh has pretty much smoked this out in, in the research and, and uh, investigation that he's done on it, is that there's, there's a pot of gold at the end of that rainbow. I mean, you know, you've got a corrupt medical establishment um, that, you know, knows, look, this is somebody who's going to be a patient the rest of their life Right. We're until they get sued. Hormones. Yeah. It's, you know, <laughs> there are procedures and drugs and everything. Like, I mean, we're, we're going to have these people in here once a month for the rest of their life. I mean, you talk about the best patients we could possibly get. Um, you know, so, and hey, like, Scott, when, when's it going to become a pot of gold for the lawyers? Well, and that are, to me, I mean, you know, I think back. for yeah. sure, I think state, if, you know, Republican state legislatures across the country that are trying to do the, you know, the, the, uh, anti uh, uh, or the, the the transgender surgery bans for minors 
you know, I think that's a good step and it should be done no matter what kind of circus they set off in your state capital while you're trying to do it. But the other bill that needs to be passed is, you know, is a is a um, medical malpractice bill on trans surgeries that basically says there's no statute of limitations or prescription on the liability because the damage is continuing from the surgery. And if you ever get to the point you know, where it's like, hey, I regret doing this. And the doctor that put me through it um, has harmed me. I mean, when when the insurance companies won't write malpractice insurance for doctors that perform this procedure, the procedure will stop. And you can do something about the, you know, um, I don't even know what what you would call it, the, the horror that's been going on uh, with these these people who are, I think, emotionally and spiritually um, um, sick and you know they're, they're, they're looking for something and right now the culture and the zeitgeist is telling them oh no what it is is that you're a woman in a man's body or, or vice versa and this is how you fix it and somebody looking for a bunch of money will put you through that procedure I mean I, there's so many different angles to this that suggest evil it's not even I mean, we could do an entire show just on that small subject um well, much less write books about it imagine the more direct forms right like uh right now or it might, might have been last week i'm not keeping track but they just held a satan conference in boston mm -hmm. right which which <laughs> attracted a bunch of different academics out there i mean it's uh uh, Pope Francis about five or six years ago called for an exorcist in every diocese in the world. I mean, that's that's how bad it is, you know, not just four or five in each state. Right. But in every diocese in the world. So, you know, he he sensed that something was up. The the kid, the, the original film, The Exorcist, if you out of your Saudi documentary films about it, but that kid, I believe, was made open to this by a visiting aunt, I think. And it might have been a Ouija board or something that the aunt brought into the house, right? Mm -hmm. So imagine a society now where people are, aren't just opening themselves to it by maybe a kid who an aunt comes and he's completely innocent and she brings it in or or you're you're not you don't have the full armor of God on for whatever reason. But imagine people blatantly going to Satan conferences. I mean, that that's again, the danger is we get less and less professing of the Judeo-Christian beliefs. And and th that 60 that number goes down to 70, 60 percent. It's going to be uh this is completely unforeseen just how bad that this can get. I, I, I mean, there could be real cultural carnage from all I think of there. This. I think there is real cultural carnage yeah, starting yeah. now in California, to your point, uh, Scott, do you know, I just learned this from one of the detransitioning girls that insurance is required to cover transition, but not required to cover detransition. Mm, so right. these people who've gone through transition they get everything paid for. But wow. once they realize they want to reverse it, nothing is paid for. So the they, state is a handmaiden to that. That's Gavin Newsom. Yes. Right. That's, Gavin. That's, that is another, that's another bill that particularly red state legislatures should like, look, hey, if insurance is going to cover transition in this state, then it has to cover detransition. And yeah. watch how fast the insurance companies go. We're washing our hands of the whole thing. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, that's uh, the... 
so much of this, like just from a logical perspective, doesn't make sense. And, and it is an ideology that seems starkly divided. So like, I can't, they have completely buried this research study. I made the huge mistake of not downloading it when I found it. And I haven't been able to find it since, but like something like 97% of gay and trans people um, are children of liberals. Yeah. This is not, this is a liberal phenomenon. This is not a very tiny, tiny percentage come out of conservative families. And then we have this kind of research where um, Jonathan Haidt, we talked about this before, about why are the young people so sad? But again, it's a mostly liberal phenomenon where they feel helpless and hopeless and everything. The best thing that are the people can do, and it's just such a simple thing, is take time to go to church or temple or whatever once a week. And I will say this too, even for even though I'm not too fan too much of a fan of Islam, I noticed that the Islamic kids the who who go to you know their parents are you know uh, a little bit reformed because they're American, but they but they go to uh, what is it? What is it? Not mosque. 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 Sorry, mosque. I just left my mind. But anyways, those kids seem pretty solid too. You know what I mean? Like kind of in, you know, kind of whole and healthy because their parents don't, I, I can tell you this, don't put up with a lot of the junk that is out in the society. Oh yeah, especially, right. Mm -hmm. So so you have these religious young people uh, across the spectrum. If, if you, all you do as a parent is take your kid to church once a week, or whatever your faith is, and so that they understand the very basic thing that there's a higher power, that, that humans aren't the total authority, that there is somebody else involved in what happens in the world, that there is it's not all on you, that it's bigger than you. I think that serves a protective, it just puts a helmet on the kid's mind to protect them against so much, just that simple thing. Because they're like, okay, I might be having a bad day, but God knows I'm here and loves me. You know, that just basic thing. And um, so many, and this is what's changed in society. You know, like 50 years ago, everybody kind of passively believed this. Right. This was that, you know, the thing is, even if you were, had parents, like my grandpa, who's, or my great uncle, who's one of the best men I know. Um, he recently died. He he wasn't a Christian most of his life. He he converted in his like eighties, but he was just a good, decent, hardworking man who believed in God. Everybody in the county came to him for wisdom, that sort of thing. It was just kind of in the uh, there was a common understanding. Same way with our founders now um the rise I, I was I've really been thinking about Salem and I was like I wonder if there were really witches because they should have been burned if they really were because <laughs> looking at what's happening now this kind of pantheistic uh worshiping of nature leads to such evil evil places I was reading the art of just this little piece about Julius Caesar was talking about what he uh stumbled into when they took over the Gauls 
in France and then further up when they went into Britain, which is this whole Druidism stuff. And they they had a, um, they sacrificed men um, to Gaia, to the Earth Mother. <laughs> and I think about what's happening now where mothers in particular are sacrificing their sons uh, to this kind of ideology and their daughters too. But I mean, look at, um, oh, what's the, uh, Ellie wrote a great piece about this, about oh, the, with the Jazz Jennings. Jazz example. Jennings. But his, his, it's about the worst thing I've heard. It's, All, it's, I mean, it's just so heinous. Awful. Yeah. Yeah. And, but the, she's a mother betraying her own son and using him and destroying him. And, and did it for the exact same reason that Dylan Mulvaney has done what he's done himself, which is the uh, achievement of fame without merit, right? Like just, the, the, she did this so that they could be a freak show and get on television and have like make a career out of that rather than actually doing something that would be benefit people, right? Um, which to me, you know, is that is more pervasive than the trans piece is. Um, and I think it's a lot more destructive. I mean, you have like the number one um, among like the Gen Z kids, the number one uh, career aspiration is to be a social media influencer, um, which and, is, and where, again, that's a person that that's famous for nothing but being famous that people are going to pay to endorse their products for like well what are you are you a quarterback on the football like no i'm not that well, like do you do anything well um yeah i give good twitter um i mean and like that's there's no merit to that there's no there's no standard to be met there there's nothing to it other than you know like i'm good at getting attention um and I'm not going to say all the social media influencers are evil, but I am going to say that there's you can get a vague whiff of evil in a society that teaches people this is something to be to aspire to, um, because you can't run a society on social media influencers, right? You need firemen and engineers and cops and teachers and you know, like you need people that affirmatively do good things, and that like that is the use of talents. Um, to benefit a society and, and to glorify God in the process. And when you strip all that away, you know, you have people being more and more outrageous on Twitter trying to, to, to get a Bud Light deal. Um, I, and that, I mean, I can't, I can't believe that anybody sees value in that and that thinks that you can run a society on that basis. And yet nobody seems willing to even enforce the standard or even have the discussion. And that, you know, that's off-putting. That's a and Including fathers. Where are the fathers in this? Where are the fathers to stand up to mothers like this and say, you're not going to do this to my son, right? Yeah. And, well, a, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a lot of dads don't want to fight and they don't want to put up with that and they just split. And then, and then altogether, it doesn't even... It doesn't even get to that. Look at Charles Murray's book, Coming Apart, right? We we have this, it used to be, it was it was kind of the, you know, the white middle class in America that was kind of the backbone of the culture, the taxpayers, you know, where the, where my family came from, the coal miners, the steel workers, and 
they were there every Sunday. They would get up and take their only suit, put a tie on, go to church, right, with their wife and, you know, two or three or four kids. And they did that for 50, 60 years. Now uh, they're not getting married. They're not getting married at all. And you just say, I have, um, I have a, I have a friend who's an OBGYN in a, in a small town hospital. And, and one weekend uh, we were getting together, I think it was like Saturday night. And I said, uh, Hey, how's it going? He said, Oh, I'm wiped out. We had 10 babies this weekend that I, that I delivered or whatever. And we were talking about it. And I said, just out of curiosity, um, how many of the families uh, was the mother married? And he said, Oh, he said, only one, only one. And this was, and th these were all like, like, you know, white middle-class people. And once upon a time, it would have been, it would have been nine out of 10, nine yeah. out of 10, the other way. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, so the, these, these families are falling apart. And, um, and so that stability that you need to keep it, the, the anchor, the rudder, family and faith, the, the bedrock of, of a society, it's, it's cracking. Well, so, can I say, I'd like to say something here yeah, because ahead. so like we have um, a, all of these institutions have, uh, have broken down. And so whether you talk about the church, you have a priesthood that has been ho almost wholly debauched for a couple generations and not being held accountable. It has betrayed the trust of the people. This is true, not just in the Catholic Church, but then you also have it in the Protestant uh, denominations as well. And so you have this undermining of the church's authority uh, where abuse, and it's the worst kind because it's betraying the authority of God. So, I mean, all of these people involved in it, you know, straight to hell and you know, better that you had not been born is what the scripture says. And then, so you have this undermining of un, all these victims of the church and the authority of the church has been undermined. They don't trust the people in charge of it. So then that destroys the credibility of that institution. Then you have in marriage, uh, men who are not taking their responsibilities uh, at all seriously who beat their wives, who drink, who cheat on them. Now, now it's a mutual thing. Like it, it, it has degraded to the point where it's not just a male thing, but it started primarily, the feminist movement, uh, my point being, didn't start out of nothing. It found fertile ground because um, men were not upholding their duties and their part in the family. And then you have... Marxists like Betty Friedan come along and plants these seeds of discontent and they grow because the women see it in their own house. You know, their husband's beating them. They're never, they're making, they're expect, all these things are expected of them and there's uh, no expectations or the man, because he's a man in the house, he can do whatever. And so you have this, for, and the kids see this too. The kids are like, dad's scary and he's and he's mean to mom so then that mm -hmm. undermines the family and so now we come into this you know then no fault divorce comes along because ronald reagan was like these women shouldn't be stuck in these relationships with these terrible men and it completely destroys uh marriage further the churches sit there and go well we just need to preach 
uh, stuff that is more culturally relevant and they stay away from doctrine. And so it's all weak mush and the Marxists know exactly what they believe. Meanwhile, the churches don't know what they believe. And they're, you know, you see a priest up there with his banjo talking about his experience this week. And it's, you know, it's, it's you know, just frivolous um, pap. And, and the people are going, this is weak sauce. And then they leave. And so you have this, this kind of cultural just rot taking in. But the, because of it, I don't think has been acknowledged, you know? So like, if you want to change this tide back, if you've made a mistake, you you can't just say, well, I'm not going to do that anymore. No, you have to own that. And so we, and then we have the problem in schools where all these children are being abused and, and whatever, and all this kind of, it's just terrible. hundred times worse in the public school system than in the Catholic church, the abuse of no, children. Question. Hundred a hundred times worse data proven and and so like then then through covid parents are seeing what's being taught so that institution gets destroyed so my point is that 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 these institutions were destroyed by people who should have known better and have done little to correct the problem and so now we see this men's movement because i'm getting you know you know screwed over in the judicial system Okay, yeah, well, I mean, that is just part of what happens because of what has happened before. Right. And so like, and, and we have now like, oh, the, the evil that has perme permeated the like what uh, young people believe is okay. So now we have young people thinking uh, that wanton sex is fine. Women are surprised then when men find them, you know, used up trash and won't marry them. And because they're so devalued, they val don't value themselves. Men try to explain it to women. There's this kid who goes around college campuses interviewing, you know, young men and women. And the women to a person will refuse to understand that a man will view them differently if um, they have you know, had multiple sexual partners. They just, the women are like, I can't get it. Like, why would that matter to a man? Well, it does matter because you get to choose. And so they realize how little value you put in them. So they, so like everything is screwed up, but the original institutions did this. And so now we're at this place where no one, ha you know, men don't have authority in their, in the home run away from that authority. The women hate them, but won't have any respect for them. It is just Wait, let, let me, vile. Let me, let me rephrase your, your statement there because um, let me, I can, I can clarify it. They're not running away from the, um, no, men have responsibility without authority in too many of these cases. And so what they're running away from is, is that situation less than the authority itself? Does that make sense? So in other words, if it's the guy's fault, but he's not able to actually do something about it, that's when he runs away. And mm -hmm. I, I, I'm bringing this up because there was something I've been, I've been wanting to bring up this whole podcast, which is a couple of weeks ago or a week ago, 
um, kind of when all the, I guess it was when all the, uh, the stuff came out in, I guess, Tennessee or whatever, somebody uncovered this study that's like 30 years old from Sweden. And basically what they found was three out of five, I think it was, of the uh, trans women, I guess, boys who become girls, uh, came from a home where the mother had some sort of yeah. diagnosis of emotional or mental trouble. Bipolar disorder, I think, was specifically what it was. Um, and in almost all of those cases, like there, either there's no father or the father was very passive. Um, and a while back, Matt Walsh did something on this. This was before he did the What is a Woman movie, um, because he found there was some HBO documentary, of course, glorifying the whole trans thing. Um, and they had like uh, four or five different kids. And it was the mother turning the kids trans and the father was either gone or he just sat there and did nothing like he was hand-packed or whatever he was. And so I think that like the general piece that you can see from this and like a lot of everything else that we're talking about, um, like the men in those families, like their job is to serve as a guardrail mm -hmm. and they, and they refuse to do it. And we're seeing this, all of these institutions, Melissa, you're talking about that have gone wrong. It was because the people that were there to provide the guardrails and make sure that the institution was doing what it was supposed to do completely failed. And then the institution collapses because it's no longer on the course that it's supposed to be on. The church is supposed to you know, bring people closer to God. Instead, you've got perverts in the church that are bringing people to the devil by all of the different abusive things that they're doing. And then the churches that may not even be responsible for that, they're trying to, to, to chase essentially clicks or just put people in the seats. So they're running a, a you know a, a, an entertainment hour every Sunday morning rather than actually enlightening people. And so nobody gets anything out of that. And then you see all of these other institutions. For example, the Boy Scouts got attacked from the outside and it destroyed that entire organization because they were not allowed to drive kids in the direction that that organization was supposed to be uh, moving them into, which is self-reliance, you know, life skills you need and a certain amount of discipline and those kinds of things. No, you can't have that because none of your kids are gay or you won't let any girls in the Boy Scouts or whatever it is. But, you know, they were attacked from the outside and they couldn't withstand it and they got very little support. And it's institution after institution that no longer um, moves society forward as it was built to do. Um, and, and in that chaos, I mean, you know, I go back to what Tucker Carlson said in his, um, in his thing uh, at, at Heritage, right before he got fired. He says, you know, you know good and evil by their fruits, right? Good creates order and beauty and, and peace and all those things. And, and evil creates, um, you know, uh, disorder, chaos, violence and filth and we see that everywhere um and so like I, and i think there's a, a a definite amount of truth in that and i think maybe that's where you start i mean because i've talked to so many people that have mentioned the word evil of late i i see it everywhere all you know on the streets all these different things there's an evil out there and you know I don't know that whether you can call this some sort of metaphysical, spiritual thing that there's demons roaming the streets or whatever it is, but by Carlson's definition, you can see the evil because there is disorder, chaos, violence, and filth all over the place. 
and so then to bring, this, to the bring down of institutions. So, yeah, so to bring this back to what we said in the in the opening segment, right? There is an enduring moral order. <laughs> yeah. All right. And it is it is uh, male, female, God created them. Um, a man and a woman shall leave their parents and come together and become one flesh. It's the family. It's male, female marriage, right? Male, male marriage are marriages without moms. Okay. You got that liberals. All right. Female, female marriages. One of the new forms of marriage you guys have invented is a form of marriage without a dad. You're creating dadless marriages deliberately. You're creating motherless marriages deliberately. All right. There's a male female complementarity, right? So the enduring moral order that's out there, two genders, right? Male, female marriage. And when you start to break away from this stuff, you start to have all this cultural chaos and carnage, right? You no longer have what, um, Kirk and Reagan and John Paul II, you know, Thomas Merton called ordered liberty. And, you know, conservatism is not just about freedom, right? You hear libertarians say that all the time, freedom, 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 freedom. The conservatives believe in freedom too, but not at the expense of order. So conservatives believe you shouldn't have the freedom to do anything you want in a society uh, that comes at the expense of order, right? Which is why we're against, um, you know, we're, we're against you know, legalizing heroin. We're, you know, we, we don't want you to open up your prostitution shop in the middle of town right next to the Jack Kevorkian Hemlock Society Center, right? <laughs> we, 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 you know, we, we're, we're, against, we're against suicide. We're against all these, all these vices being legalized because that causes disorder. So we want liberty, but we want ordered liberty. And right now in society, you just have this vast disorder. And I think it's because of, uh, not to throw this all at the feet of progressives, but this enduring moral, or this uh, evolving moral order that they believe in, you can't just change all these things. There, 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 is, there are set biblical and natural absolutes, natural law, biblical law. And the more you break away from male-female marriage, male-female um, gender, you're going to have all of this cultural chaos. And much of this is spiritual. Yep. Um, it's a perfect opportunity for us to plug a book of yours, which mm -hmm. I think has a lot to do with this discussion that we've had. I have it right here. It's called The Devil and Karl Marx. What a lovely read. Dr. Paul Kingler. Um, <laughs> and I'm, I'm working my way through it in the very... Uh, early parts of the book, you mention a lot about Marx's early career, I guess, if you could call it that, yeah. um, where, you know, he spends a lot of time really just essentially being a gadfly and taking shots at uh, Christianity, declaring himself an atheist and, and all these kinds of things. Um, I mean, the thing people need to understand about Marx above everything else, and I wrote a lot about this in the Revivalist Manifesto, is that this guy was one of the biggest assholes who ever walked the face of <laughs> um, I mean, like, he really was. Like, everything about him, he was, he, I mean, you know, we're talking about order and order. This guy pretty much peed all over that his whole life. He was a nihilist. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he wanted to take everything down. He, um, in his Opiate of the Masses essay, he uses the word criticism like 26 times. By the way, he so said the beginning, the criticism of religion, he said, is the beginning of all criticism. Uh, he, he called for, quote, the ruthless criticism of everything that exists. If there's a word he uses more than criticism, it's abolition over and over and over again. And he... Uh, you know, he was not an economist. He was um, he was not a theologian. 
He was a philosopher. He wasn't a very good philosopher. He was really a polemicist more than, than anything else. And, and he fancied himself a poet. And as I noted in that book, right, he wrote poems about wasn't the devil. wasn't very good at that either. <laughs> no, real, I mean, really chilling poems about the devil. You know, see this sword, the devil sold it to her. It, it stabs unerringly within thy soul, right? The devil sold it to me. And he he fancied himself a poet. He loved Goethe. He wanted to do nothing less than be the Goethe of his age. And he wanted he wanted to write the next Faust. He the, his he was asked, "Do you have a favorite quote, a favorite phrase?" And if you asked one of us, right, you know, Scott, Melissa, or myself, we might give you a scripture verse. We might say something like, "Be not afraid." We might come up with some pithy quote, you know, this kind of happy, optimistic quote about whatever. Mark said, "Oh yes." from the Mephistopheles character, the devil character, the demon character in Faust. Everything that exists deserves to perish. Everything that exists deserves to perish. So he wanted to burn everything down. And I quote in the start of the book, Robert Payne, who wrote, um, I think the best biography of Marx back in 1968. He did one through a university press, NYU press, another through Oxford University Press. He was this kind of middle of the road British scholar. And he actually addressed the question. He said in his chapter in his Marx book, the chapter called The Demons, there were times when Marx seemed to be possessed by demons. Now, this is a this is an academic British scholar of literature and the arts writing this. Uh, he had the devil's view of the world and the devil's malignity. Sometimes Marx seemed to know that he was accomplishing works of evil. And as I say in the book, I mean, it's above my pay grade to try to say whether or not Marx was possessed. I don't try to say that. But I opened the book with, with stanzas from two of his poems, one, The Pale Maiden, written in 1837. Thus, heaven I forfeited, I know it full well. My soul, once true to God, is chosen for hell. And Marx, who came from a Jewish family and converted to Christianity, um, had in fact once been true to God and broke away from that. You know, he, he forfeited that. And then another one, The Player, written in 1841, which I was trying to quote earlier from, from up top of my head. Look now, my blood-dark sword shall stab unerringly within thy soul. The hellish vapors rise and fill the brain till I go mad and my heart is utterly changed. See the sword, the prince of darkness sold it to me, for he beats the time and gives the signs. Ever more boldly I play the dance of death. So that's the dark view and dark poetry, the dark philosophy of the man who gave us communism, who gave us Marxism, which was the deadliest ideology in history. And uh, the Catholic Church described it in the 1937 encyclical Divini Redemptoris as a satanic scourge orchestrated by the sons of darkness and said this ideology is literally out of the pit of hell. And you know, Michael Knowles wrote the foreword to this book, and Knowles said, you know, conservatives always want to say, well, Marxism doesn't work because it distorts markets, <laughs> right? Well, yeah, it distorts markets, but it doesn't work because it's, it's, it's the evil. the smallest problem with Marxism. Right. It's 
spiritually wrong. Um, John Paul II and Pope Benedict XVI said uh, Marx had his anthropology wrong. He doesn't understand human nature. He doesn't understand humanity. You, yeah. Augustine said we have a God-shaped vacuum in each of us, right? We don't have a dollar-shaped vacuum in each of us. Uh, Christ told Satan, man does not live by bread alone. And, and Marx rejected religion. He said there is no God. He was an atheist. So at the, at the core of this dangerous Marxist-Leninist philosophy that's killed over 100 million people was this atheism, this this um, aggressive, militant, you know, spiritual, uh, anti-religion, and uh, in some sense, demonic. Was Marx possessed? I don't know. I don't know that. I can't say that. And in the book, I say I can't say that. But um, certainly his ideology wrought great evil. Uh, well, it, it, to pick up on that just a little bit, so there isn't that much Marxism-Leninism left, right? I mean, I think the economic pillars of communism are largely gone. Mm -hmm. What has remained and what is actually more successful in the modern age is the, is the cultural Marxism of the Frankfurt School and the whole critical theory and all of its different um, things, which I think has the same spiritual deficiencies. Um, and, and probably I, I think it's, it's not too far to go to say that it has the same sort of demonic um, characteristics to it in that it's here to tear things down and not to build them, right? Yeah, I, mean, I go through all of that in the book. In fact, yeah. uh, Martin Malia, the, the late Cal Berkeley professor, used to call it the Frankfurt School of Marxism without the proletariat. So right. it's not classical Marxism. They were Freudian Marxists, and they began applying Marxism to sexuality. Um, the, the term the sexual revolution was coined by Wilhelm Reich who wrote a book called The Sexual Revolution. He was a Freudian Marxist. And then they go on up through the Frankfurt School. Um, Kate Millett, who wrote Sexual Politics, her dissertation at Columbia, she ended up on the cover of, of Time magazine. They called her the Mao Tongue of the women's movement. Herbert Marcuse, the leading guru to the new left, and his biggest disciple is Angela Davis. So they started applying Marxism today if you go to the website of People's World, which is the successor to the Daily Worker, website of Communist Party USA, People's World has a call for what they call cultural workers. You know, they're not trying to get coal miners and steel workers. You know, those guys in my area of Western PA and West Virginia, they all voted for Trump, right? You know, they're applying their Marxism now to gender, sexuality, race. race. And you wonder, race. well, how does that eat? Yeah. How does that even apply? Well, it's critical theory, right? Critical race theory develops out of critical theory. Even Wikipedia says that. But they take this general Marxist framework or construct of oppressed versus oppressor. And so ever since the left has been looking for the latest victim group to put in as the oppressed, the latest oppressor group, and in classical Marxism, Marxism is the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. Modern day and gender Marxism, it's male female, and uh, race based Marxism, it's black white. It, you know, in sexual Marxism, it's some other construct. But it's this constant you know, search for the victim group that becomes the redeemer group, and the one sort of commonality, critical theory, back to Marx. Ruthless criticism of everything that exists. They want to tear down all of the basic fundamentals. You know, everything that exists deserves to perish. Picture Marx standing there in the embers of the burnt down building, right? Now we are ready anew, right? To create whatever it is. But they have to tear down. 
And the first thing you have to tear down is religion. And also, as, as Marx and Engels said in the Communist Manifesto, quote, abolition of the family, exclamation mark. Even the most radical flare up at this infamous proposal of a communist, unquote. So they go after religion. They go after morality. They go after the family. They go after all of these things. It is, um, it's the ideology of destruction. And, of course, the devil was the, was the prince of destruction. So one of Satan's titles is accuser. Mm -hmm. And all of this is accusing because none of these, um, and let's face it, it's not the best and brightest who are attracted to the, this ideology. It's, uh, there's actually been studies that show that um, people who, <laughs> Although so too good. many intellectuals are attracted to it. Well, yes. The opium of the intellectuals, Raymond Aaron called it. Yeah. Right, right. Well, the thing is though, like I'll just say this, the abortionists, the transgender doctors, they're not the ones who are graduating first in their class because you actually have to have some really good talent to build and heal, right? Mm -hmm. um, but it's but the the uh, kind of the leftovers. And and I would say the le leftover intellectuals who who are not wanting to uh, acknowledge the greater framework, they're still acknowledging God by fighting against God's authority. Right. So there, the, it's the it's still the one down position. And so there's this kind of ugliness that is attracted to this and envy that's underneath everything. Marx was lazy. He wasn't very good looking. He wasn't very smart. And he's a very typical Tommy. He was a drunk. And he, he was, was a drunk. And it was all yeah. about envy. The whole ideology is about envy. It's about yeah. envy. At the, so so that kind of covetousness that is inherent in this ideology yeah. is, and then you have the um, satanic kind of accusing anything that is good, you know, going after anything that is building and wanting to destroy it because, you know, uh, many of the people who I know who fall into this ideological camp uh, fundamentally either don't believe in themselves to be able to be, to be something like to be a builder of something like a deep insecurity or don't, or believe or have a contempt for other people who think they can. And I think the contempt is the active ingredient more than anything. I mean, every hardcore leftist I've ever met was a contemptuous individual who, you know, could find a grievance in just about everything. Right. And I right. mean, it's a, this is a philosophy that works so well. I mean, so many of them all are, you know, kids of uh, successful people who didn't measure up to dad or whatever. And, uh, you know, in leftism, it's a perfect validation for their existence as a, you know, black sheep of the family, um, you know, or they're small town people who moved to a big city and are very mm -hmm. contemptuous of the, you know, sort of backward morals of the small town folks. I mean, it's a pattern that repeats itself over and over again. And I mean, that is what sort of the, the vanguard of the socialist movement has always been, which is the waste of arrogance, right? Yeah, a contemptuous yeah. arrogance where they look yeah. at people who don't agree with them as idiots, as morons, and they don't even stop to read us. I mean, right. I read their stupid right. books. Right. I read the Communist Manifesto and I check their websites every morning. Do they come to the American Spectator and read our stuff? And yeah, I read no. some of the reader comments I see. They don't. Yeah, even some of them it. will make the comments section, but I don't know how much of the articles they read. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but but, but they, you know they are. Um, you're right. They are very contemptuous.
Well, and look, I mean, that I just described Marx and Engels, by the way. I mean, both of them were sort of wastrel sons of, right, of right. industrialist fathers. Not um, only to get me going on that. Marx yeah, I mean, every, everybody in that entire set that, that, you know, Marx and Engels hung around, particularly when they got to London, it was all rich kids. Uh, you know, who they're all products of university family business or their dad was like, God, you're horrible. And they got rid of, them, you know, and they and Marx had two daughters who committed suicide and suicide oh. packs with their husbands. <gasps> and one and one of the husbands that committed one of the husbands that committed suicide with Marx's daughter. His name was Paul Lafargue, and he was partly Cuban. In fact, Marx and Engels being racist tried to evolutionary racists sat around and tried to deduce how much Negro blood uh, Paul hired. They didn't use the word Negro. They used the American racial epithet, N-I-G-G. In fact, if you can read through letters between Marx and Engels, the whole thing is in German. And you see the N-I-G-G. They don't even use the German word for Negro. They right. use the American racial epithet. So uh, Marx referred to Paul as Negrillo or the gorilla. Mm -hmm. And they made fun of Paul. Uh, they said he was uh, lower on the evolutionary ladder, closer to monkeys and apes than the rest of us. By the way, Patrice Cullors, the founder of BLM, calls herself a Marxist. <laughs> right. right. And she but, didn't know about and, all that, right? She, she doesn't know about it because she's a product of our university, so they don't teach any of this, so she doesn't know about it. Right. right? I mean, you get, um, you know, they'll take one statement from Donald Trump in Charlottesville or whatever, go, racist, right? But Marx, you know, you have him using the N-word, everything else, and people don't even know about it. They don't talk about it. But his family was the epitome of dysfunction. So you had two daughters who committed suicide and suicide pacts with their husbands. You know, not uh, not very impressive. Right. Well, can you show uh, your book again? Scott, will you show? Yeah, I've got it. Uh, yeah. The Devil I, I think... The devil and Karl Marx. And so, and then after you read that, everybody, if you're not too <laughs> discouraged, read the Revivalist Manifesto. Because yeah. the thing is, one of the things I told my kids is that when the world is dark, even a tiny pinpoint of light stands out. There's no hiding it. A, a pitch black place where one, and, and my son said, but mom, they'll attack the light. I said, it's ever been thus. That is true. But that doesn't mean that you don't continue to be a light. Well, and the so, founder of the Christophers said, uh, rather than curse the darkness, right, uh, light a candle. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Well, on that note, thank you so much. Uh, we ended it optimistically. How did we do that? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Light through. There you go. There hey, you go. Chesterton, Chesterton said, "Hope is about having hope when things seem hopeless." Yeah. So faith, hope, That's and charity. That's absolutely true. And the the armor of God, the helmet the, is the helmet of hope. Protects yeah. our mind. And so when all is lost, keep that helmet on and keep on hoping because there is something better. And the, one of the things we didn't talk about, but is this isn't the end. This, the, the, this is why conservatives, God believers are hopeful. So even when we see all these dark tidings it's not like we don't see them we have eyes it's that we know that this isn't ultimately the the true world that it there's a better world out there that we're made for and right. and so we wait on that and in the meantime hope is really there mm -hmm. hope is really there and yeah. in the meantime we plow the field that we're given right that's right that's right we carry the cross 
we we're expected to do this. That's we're expected right. to do it. And so we That's do right. it. We do what we can. So thank you so much for joining us, Paul. This has been sure. a really great uh, discussion. Great. And hopefully people understand a little bit more about evil and understand the roots of it and can have some tools to fight it. Thank you, Scott, too. Um, you know, you guys are really great. It's an honor for people who don't know. It's an honor to work with you guys and to well see. same with you thank you yeah. very much yeah so until that until next week everybody thank you for listening please like and subscribe and share this with uh your friends and family and um we hope to make this podcast even grow further so it all depends on you so you know press the buttons and everybody and do all of that thank you everybody mm -hmm.